Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Mike Casey takes his tenor saxophone and creates not just great music, but creates whole audiences around his jazz music and really uses modern, current social media and other blog and related tools in interesting ways. As an artist, as an artist manager, as a tech company, you'll enjoy listening to him as he talks about how he builds an audience for his version of jazz in this modern digital era. You're seeming to do a lot of great things on marketing yourself, philanthropy, fundraising, working with all sorts of folks. That's just me looking from the outside, not knowing you very well. Can Mike, can you share what you're doing and a bit of how you got there? I'm currently, uh, I'm doing a lot of different things, but one of those things is uh, a master's student at Berkeley's Valencia campus in Spain. Um, cool. I'm about halfway through. It's a year-long program, and I'm having the time of my life here, um, and uh, it's been really great. So I'm, I'm doing that program right now. It's a major in contemporary performance and music production, so it's not a jazz degree, um, which is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to expand and learn more about other types of things, um, so I'm learning about flamenco and a- recording in Ableton and making electronic music and getting to meet people from 40 different countries here. So that's, it's been really great doing that. Um, now, have you run in, have you run into Adam Mosley yet? You know what? He was. Ju- it's funny. He was just here like the other day, and I saw he was from UCLA, and I was going to mention that to you. So I figured you knew him. Well, actually, he was on the podcast a couple podcasts ago. Oh, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, he <laughs> he was here all week. Yeah, yeah he was there. Very excited. He's been posting various things of being in Valencia, Valencia, and yeah. uh, in, enjoying the, his experiences there. But yeah, no, he's a. Uh, He's on our advisory board as well. He's one of our, our lecturers here, but he's also on the advisory board for the Center for Music Innovation, which I run. So now he's one of our one of our friends. So oh, great. Cool. I'm glad you're enjoying Valencia. You're enjoying Berkeley's really great program. So how is that how is that working with your work? So right now I'm I'm working on continuing to expand beyond jazz. Um, not necessarily by not creating jazz. Uh, I'm still you know that's still my the core of what I do, and and uh, um, it will be you know in some way f- probably for a long time. But uh, for example, yesterday I launched a remix album. I, I just started the first part of the remix album. I'm releasing it track by track, and what I'm doing is I'm taking uh, these two live albums that I did in twenty that I recorded in 2016 from one live show with my band at a jazz club. We did a two hour show. Almost every song was a first take live, which in jazz is really hard to pull off. And I split that into two albums released. One half in 2017 is The Sound of Surprise. The second half in 2018 is Stay Surprising. Now I'm releasing Surprise, the remixes. And I'm working with producers from all over the world to reimagine these live, these kind of gritty, like unique, kind of modern, and some not as modern, like jazz songs uh, in, in electronic soundscapes of various styles. So the first one launched yesterday with a remix of uh, an original of mine called Heartbreak, 
um, by a producer in Oslo, Norway named Old Burger Beats. And he really took it to like a whole different place, which is really cool. It's cool to see how these producers are doing this with no stems because it was just a live show. It was recorded multi-track, but there's no isolation. So everything's bleeding. So they're just working with like the main wave file which um, kind of makes it challenging on their end, but... Okay, stop, stop, stop. We're going to stop a second. Stems we've talked about in prior episodes. What oh. do you mean by bleeding? Great, great question. So uh, when, when most artists record, uh, there's some type of isolation in the studio, whether in booths, whether people are in separate booths or separate rooms, or there's just like kind of a divider, like a wall that they put in the studio so that... Um, the sax mic, what, what's coming out of the saxophone doesn't get picked up by the piano mic, for example. Um, in a live show, when you record a live show, because it's also a show where people paid tickets to see you, there's usually not isolation. Um, and because of that reason, um, it kind of makes it, I mean, there's, there are stems. I mean, there are multi-track stems, but there's so much bleed because you're hearing stuff from the monitors, you're hearing all the instruments together that you know, the stems are basically unusable. So all these producers were just using like the main track and taking parts of them and like reworking them and adding things to them. So it's really a unique project. And, and they took these songs and really like completely transformed them. So I'm very excited to be sharing this with the world. It kind of ties into my past as a DJ as well. I love remix culture, always have. So kind of scratching that itch as well. So all of this connects to Berkeley in that... <clears throat> I was going to go back to grad school. I wasn't super confident that I wanted to do another jazz degree. I was thinking about it. I did the auditions, had a bunch of options. This presented itself to get out of my comfort zone by going to another country, um, explore Europe. Uh, I have a ton of listeners here that I can see on, on various you know, data sources. Um, and Spain was always actually my number two country listening after America. So I just figured between get it, being able to hopefully start uh, you know, performing in Europe, which is really the next step for my career. Also, artistically, it's just getting to, you know, learn all sorts of other things outside of jazz. And that kind of ties into my work because part of that is I'm releasing this remix album this year while I'm here at Berkeley and actually collaborating with some uh, students here, some like uh, student mixed and mastered uh, that track, that remix yesterday. And another student is uh, actually collaborating with me to make one of the remixes. So you're a multifaceted story. So you are both creating using all sorts of great tools, but you're also creating community around your version of jazz. And you're a, pretty much a one-man show, yes? I am, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically just me. Uh, I mean, there's no, there's no like full team. There's no label. There's no manager. There's no agent. Um, I'm My focus this year in 2019 is to actually change that so that... I, I can spend more time on the music and kind of just keep scaling things up. I've, I've been able to build quite a lot on my own. And I think now it's kind of reaching the point where uh, it's just at the point where it's a little it's becoming a too much scale wise for one person to handle. So I am let's, working on building. Let's pause team. for a second and talk about this scale at this point in time. Where have you taken your music and what are the tools that you've used to get there? Sure. So my recording career launched um, about two years ago in early February 26, 2017, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And in those first two years, um, as a one-man show, I've been able to pass 2 million streams fully DIY, which in jazz, I'm 
fairly confident is a first. I think no one has done that before without a label or a team in jazz. Um, for those listening in the industry, 2 million streams might not sound like a lot if you're comparing it to, let's say, Drake. But keep in mind that jazz uh, traditionally, and this is changing with streaming, but it's 1% of the music market, in, in America at least. It's 1% of the music market. So 2 million streams is is actually astonishingly high for jazz. And if you look around, you'll find that most jazz artists doing numbers like that have not only a label and a team, but years and years and years in the game. Um, so I kind of, this is all like against all odds. I crowdfunded the first album on Pledge Music. Um, I booked 30, 30, 35 concerts in these last two years as two album release tours, um, released these two albums in a single uh, was able to line up press from the Huffington Post to uh, Evernote to Spotify to all sorts of things. Been lined up features on almost every streaming service. And date. you're doing this all yourself. Yes. So let's back up. Two million streams on which platforms? Well, that's combined on all of them. Yep. Um, I would say the majority is Spotify, and and uh, the rest is a mix of everyone else. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 that's a combined number. Um, and, so and so a lot I, of it is playlist magic, getting on the right playlists. Well, yes and no. Um, so I would say about about two thirds of them are from playlists okay. uh, that I can see. I mean, I only have access to so much data, but um, maybe about between fifty percent and two thirds is about is from playlists. Um, the majority of the listens from playlists are from lean in playlists. And that's a really key distinction to make um, because a lot of people in the industry are very aware that you can have some type of mellow track and you get on some mood playlist and then you get 5 million streams, but no one knows who you are. Yep. Um, my story is a lot different than that in that most of the streams have come from, from, from most of the playlist streams, I should say have come from two sources for one, uh, I've been featured on this Spotify playlist called State of Jazz, which is basically their rap caviar for the jazz world mm -hmm. in the jazz section of Spotify. It's the new music playlist. It's lean in. It's where fans go to actually really engage and see what's happening in the jazz world. Um, in the past 18 months, I've been featured on there almost every month. I think every month with at least one track, sometimes as much as three tracks, which Generally, I'm. It looks like I'm the only indie artist who's having three tracks at the time. There, I've also uh, collaborated with Tidal to curate three uh, artists' uh, playlists, collaborations with them in conjunction with each release um, around different themes that I came up with the ideas for. Um, so I got a lot from that as well because those were prominently featured in the jazz section of Tidal as like they have like a whole guest curated section. Um, and then the rest of them come from a mix of press touring. I mean, even before starting this, I, ha I had already built up kind of like a, a local fan base and, and my social media a little bit too. And, um, and, and of course, local you know, for you is where when you're not in Spain. So it's, it's a couple of places. I was in Hartford, Connecticut for about 10 years. So a lot of it was throughout Connecticut, but then also New York too. I mean, I, even when I was living in Hartford, I was gigging in New York quite a bit. And then um, the year before I got to Spain, I was living in the Philly area. So kind of a mix of like Hartford, New York, Philly. That's all kind of, to me, sort of like the local area for me. <laughs> it's kind of 
kind of broad, but that's about that's about it. Um, so it's a it's a mix of a few things. Um, the press certainly has helped a lot in driving awareness. And that you've again done as a one man show. How have you, other than of course reaching out, like you reached out to me, has this that been what it's been, or how has the press worked for you, and how have you been able to work the press? So the press has worked for me in in helping me get to other things. Uh, it's also helped with awareness, of course. But um, for example, when I was featured on the NPR Music Twitter page, um, that was able to help me get some more gigs. I, you know, every every basically everything that I everything that happens, I try to use that in some way to get to the next goal and the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. And I've just been building this up brick by brick from basically nothing. Uh, no shortcuts, no cheat codes, no nothing. Anything <laughs> like no, that. No, no purchase fans. No, yeah, um, nothing. Yeah, exactly. Nothing like that. It's, it's all been built up brick by brick um, through just sweat equity. Um, so it's, it's helped with that. Like each thing kind of builds into the next awareness has helped too. Um, and it, it helps when you go to a company like Splice, for example. I recently collaborated with Splice for their first ever saxophone artist sample pack, which went out to a million producers. Getting that to happen was, you know, I reach out to them and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I've been featured by this, 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 and this. And of course, that helps, you know, it helps them look at you like, okay, this is someone worth working with. It's not just a nobody and it's not just, yes, he's young, but like, you know, he's not just coming out of nowhere, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, totally. Yeah, so that it's helped there. And, and as far as um, press, I mean, I just uh, for me, it's it's coming from a very like true place. I mean, every form of press has come from an idea that I had that was in I feel in a very real way tied to my art. So, for example, the NPR music Twitter account feature came from on my first album. There's a song called Dagobah, which I wrote partially inspired by Star Wars. Dagobah is the swamp planet that Yoda hides out on, and Luke Skywalker goes to that planet in search of Yoda to become a Jedi Master. I wrote that song um, in inspiration of the city, Hartford, Connecticut, because it's not like the number one city you'd expect to go train as a jazz artist, but I chose to... I, I went to a really great performing arts high school there, and I chose to stay there for college and went to Hart for my undergrad. And I felt that that scene is very, it's a very special scene and that we kind of, Hartford is kind of the Dagobah of the jazz world and we have our own Yodas in a way, it's kind of an out of the way place. So I wrote that song after graduating and basically said to NPR music people, hey, there's this thing called Star Wars Day. This is a Star Wars inspired song. <laughs> How about it? And they were like, yeah, this sounds great. You know, and that's kind of what it was. And similar with like Evernote, like I was featured in Evernote's July newsletter to 5 million subscribers. That was really just, I actually use Evernote to write music. I, I, I use it quite a bit. And I just said, hey, I know this is a weird way to use your products. I love using your product like this. There's a story here. How about it? <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, the, basically things like that. That's just kind of how it, how it kind of comes together. I, it's not like some manufactured thing at all. It's very much coming from things that I actually do or just... You know, the art itself, I try to tell the story of the music or of the creation of the music in Evernote's case in as true a way as I can. Does this impact the type of audience you're attracting then? Or is it that the type of audience that you that is intrigued by you and your music is one that is different than a potential traditional jazz audience? 
I would say yes. Um, yes, in that these outlets are reaching a different audience. They're not really reaching the, tra- the so-called traditional jazz audience. Um, the so-called traditional jazz audience today is in a very weird state because there's kind of two sides of it. There's like the side that that there's like the types of artists that kind of reach the older audience. They kind of know exactly what that audience will like and they kind of pander to that. And then there's the audience that um, that does like very, very experimental uh, art, music that one could say, I don't personally believe this is always the case, but one could say, oh, this is making music for musicians. And that kind of actually does work a lot now because a stream is a stream is a stream is a stream. And if you're a saxophonist and your main art, excuse me, audience is saxophonists, you know, a hundred thousand streams from other saxophonists is still a hundred thousand streams, for example. Um, I mean, I do have a kind of an appeal that appeals to both crowds, but I'm also reaching just like the, the third door kind of audience in the way I'm really just trying to reach the people. I mean, that's, to me, that's like the goal as an artist is not to really be making music that just appeals to musicians and not really making music that you know will just work because of commercial out, commerciality's sake. But I'm trying to reach people. Um, and I think the story that I have is unique. And, and, and the way the music is constructed is, is done in a way where it always surprises people and they, they get into it. Um, and it is reaching... Uh, like I can see in my demographics, like two thirds of my audience is 18 to 34 and about 50, 50 male, female, which for jazz is very, very good. I mean, most jazz audiences are like a lot older and a lot more male. I'm going to stop you there. How do you know that's your audience? Is it that you're looking in all the places that you're streaming and pulling all that data? How for, for the, for folks who don't do this themselves, how do you do that? Sure. So I'm looking at a combination of streaming data and social data. I'm looking at all the social platforms that I can that offer that data to me. And I'm looking for streaming uh, primarily right now at Spotify's Artist Insights, Apple's Artist Insights, and Pandora's Next Big Sound. Um, And that's kind of... And and YouTube a little bit. YouTube as well. Um, So it's just a mix of those things. And I'm able to to kind of look at that data and figure out who's listening and, and roughly the demographic. Um, so I think, uh, it's, it's reaching, you know, beyond the stereotypical jazz audience and it's doing it without compromising. I mean, I'm still making jazz. I'm not making like some, uh, something that's like thinly veiled. That's jazz. That's not jazz. That's being marketed as jazz. You know, there's a lot of that today. Uh, I'm, there's no gimmick really. There's no, there's no like crazy outfits or anything like that. It's just, it's just jazz that's really coming from a true place and just telling an honest story. And it's, and I think it's connecting and I, um, you know, just hope to keep building that and building that. So you have kind of a trifecta of skills. You've got a performance skill that you are bringing to bear. You have a really great digital marketing skill already shown and showcased. And then you also are seeming to have a collaboration skill in working with other artists using digital or your personal relationships that you are even building presently at Berkeley. Where do you see this going for you? And are there skills you'd still like to build? Absolutely. Yeah. So where I see things going, I mean, in the, in the short term, uh, like I was saying earlier, building a team, that's really like my number one goal for this year. 
uh, I'm on the career side. Musically, I have a couple projects in the can that I'm either releasing now or getting mixing and mastering now and getting ready to release later this year. Um, and also writing new music uh, here at Berkeley with like people from all over the world using influences from all over the world. Um, so that's something I'm very excited about that'll come out later. But I mean, I really am trying to take this global as far as I can. Um, and I know that building a team around what I do is extremely, extremely important. Um, and through, through Berkeley and through other personal connections, I've, I feel like every month I'm getting a little closer to that. I'm, I'm starting to have those conversations. I'm just kind of, you know, using every opportunity I can to reach out to people and ask questions and just get in contact and build relationships and stay in touch with people that I've already reached out to. Um, and I know it'll happen. It's just a matter of time and, and just a matter of like really making sure that I'm picking the best people. You know, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's really important to have the right fit. Someone who really believes in your music, believes in what you do, is passionate about what you do and wants to help you take it to the next level. Um, so on the career side, that's where I see this going. Uh, building that team so I can have a lot more practice time and a lot more time to create. Um, and then on the music side, uh, just continuing to experiment. I'm, I'm, all, I'm very experimental this project I'm working on here at Berkeley is like taking um, elements of music from different parts of the world and fusing them together in interesting ways. So for example, I have a song that is like kind of has like an Afrobeat feel and then it goes to stadium rock and like the chords are kind of like R and B chords, but then the the melody is almost like, almost like rock sort of. Um, So it's just mixing up all these influences and, and, studying rhythms from other places and types of harmonic ideas from other places too, and just kind of mixing that all together. Um, and then this remix, remix project now. And um, before I got here, I had a couple of projects that I recorded that I'm working on that are kind of the next natural progression, artistically speaking. Um, so if you're going to give advice to a young jazz musician who is you, but maybe 20 years old coming out of, um, either a great college program or trying to do this on their own, what would your advice be? Oh, there's, it's so hard to say because there's so much I would, I would try to share. Um, I would just, I think the, the main thing that I would encourage them to do is to think as differently as you can. I think and question everything, question why things are the way they are, question why people are telling you, you things they're telling you um question why you think certain things about yourself about your music about your world and then do what you can to change them um recently i i was reading uh this book the attractor factor by uh joe vital and it's really had an impact on me and, and part of it was i realized that i've been doing a lot of these things all along it's really just like really like solidify your beliefs about the world and try to and the ones that you, that aren't serving you try to change them and and make sure that they are helping you um i would say really look at what your goals are as an artist not as a jazz artist the jazz world has a lot of issues <laughs> uh in, especially the industry infrastructure wise and and branding wise and, and artist development wise there's a lot of challenges um, and I would just encourage a 20, like a 20 year old jazz musician, don't get caught up in thinking about things the old way. Uh, not musically speaking, learning the tradition is very important, but I'm talking about presentations, presentation wise, 
business-wise, artist development-wise, do what you want and really realize that you know, you're know you a human being living today. So you have to be yourself. Don't try to adhere to some old formula about how a jazz artist should go about the early stages of the career. Uh, for example, I had, when I was working on this first record, every jazz industry person said I was crazy to release a live album as my debut. And they said to split it up into two records that you said it's insane. And they said, especially don't release a sax, bass and drums trio record. They said it's too risky. It's too, it's not accessible enough. Yet it did all these things and it, it really blew everything out of the water. So really believe in what you got and really just go hard. That's what I would say. That's, that's what I would say. Any last comments to wrap up our podcast conversation? <clears throat> I would anyone that's listening out there that you know wants to get in touch, please do. Uh, my website is mikecaseyjazz.com. Uh, my last name is spelled C-A-S-E-Y. Um, that jazz is in the domain name right now, but it won't be for forever. Um, so I am looking to collaborate outside of jazz. I listen to a lot of R&B these days. I love alt R&B, <laughs> for example. And um, yeah, I like I said, I am working on building a team. So. Um, Hopefully someone is listening and, and is inspired, maybe. And um, thank you, Gigi, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And it was just, uh, just so great to get in touch. And I really love what you're building with this podcast. And thanks for being on it. Appreciate it a lot. And looking forward to the adventures continuing. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.